welcome to The Practical Prophetic, where prophetic ministry is made practical. I'm Beth Wingate, I'm your host, and welcome to the podcast. On our podcast today, we are going to do an episode of Prophetic History, and I'm excited to share with you the history of John Wimber. Now, his influence on the church today can be felt from the worship music that we have in church to the way conferences are hosted and many, many other things. So I just am excited to sort of bring you this history. But before I bring you the history of John Wimber, I need to sort of lay down some basic church history. Now, we have what's called the Pentecostal hyphen charismatic movement that has happened within Christianity. And it's broken into three waves, uh, sort of how it's termed in seminaries. So there's first wave, second wave, and third wave. And let me give you a little history. So the first wave is considered the Pentecostal movement, which starts at Azusa Street in 1901. Two of the notable leaders of that movement are Charles Parham, who had been a Methodist minister, and then you have William J. Seymour, who really sort of takes leadership of Azusa Street. And so that sparks off worldwide revival, and you see churches being planted all over the world. They send out thousands of missionaries over, you know, the coming, you know, 10, 20 year period after Azusa Street, and you're going to see modern Christianity just completely drastically changed. And, and that's sort of what we call first wave, or some people will call it classic Pentecostalism, or you'll hear the word Pentecostalism. And the defining markers of early Pentecostalism, which, by the way, there were movements that predated Azusa Street, but Azusa Street uh, sort of gets most of the attention and becomes a defining marker. There was the Keswick Revival and other uh, movements before that. It was not the first time, you know, people had spoken tongues. In fact, that goes all the way back to the early church fathers. And, and early Christian writings and had been happening for a long time. But we know that uh, some of the markers are going to be the baptism in the Holy Spirit, and we're going to see uh, speaking in tongues be a large part of that movement. And there was an, an incredible emphasis on sanctification and holiness. And so those are sort of just the sum of the first wave. And like I said, that happens around the turn of the century, right around 1901. And the years after that has a huge impact. I mean, we're still feeling the impact of that even today. And then we see the second wave, and that's going to be largely termed as the charismatics, and that will hit around the 1960s, although it does kind of have some some early inklings even before that. And that's really going to put an emphasis on what's going to sort of take what was learned from the holiness movement from the Azusa Street, and it's going to add on to that divine healing. And you're going to see the rise of groups like Full Gospel Businessmen. You know, that's going to give birth to people like William Branham, Amy Simple McPherson, Oral Roberts, and A.A. Allen. And so those are going to be some of the central figures of that movement. There are many more, but those are just some of the central figures. And out of that movement will come tent meetings and conferences and, and faith healers. And, and so that becomes a large movement. 
And then we're going to see in the 80s, the third wave. And this is really where John Wimber comes in. He's a big part of the third wave, which is going to be titled, uh, a lot of people call them neo-charismatics or um, renewal charismatics. I've got a lot of names, but the central figures are John Wimber and C. Peter Wagner. And they were both out of Fuller College. And uh, what we're going to see here is a continuation of, you know, tongues, of healing, but we're going to also see other manifestations of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. They're going to sort of teach uh, all of the gifts of the Holy Spirit are available to believers. And I'll just give you some examples. Uh, there's going to be a emphasis on power evangelism. That's sort of a term that is coined that evangelism should should be accompanied with signs and wonders. Uh, there's going to be uh, an emphasis on prayer and spiritual warfare. They become famous for prayer walks. And, uh, you know, there was a whole movie recently made about that. And we see that being uh, infiltrated all the way into pop culture with movies like the Kendricks Brothers do, uh, for example, War Room and Facing the Giants. There's an emphasis on spiritual warfare and prayer. Of course, now with a lot of the neo-charismatics, that will be more extreme versions. But, but we've seen this infiltrate all the way down into to sort of the main stream. So let me back up and give you the history of John Wimber, this prophetic history. And I think you'll enjoy hearing some of the things that I've learned about him. I've known about him for years. I've gone to vineyard conferences on and off since I was a, a young child. We have some dear friends that have been uh, in the vineyard church for many years. Um, I know their music had a huge influence on my spiritual journey as a believer, and I know that they have been credited with really changing the face of worship music in churches to make it a much more intimate form of worship music. And so, uh, you know, that give them credit where credit is due. They've just had a massive influence on the Christian church today. So let's back up and let me give you a little bit of history. And then I want to talk about the three visions that shaped John Wimber's ministry and in turn had the impact he had. Uh, and so he's born in 1934 to Basil and Genevieve Wimber in Missouri. And so uh, he's born in 1934. He has a propensity for music. He's sort of a real young savant when it comes to music. You know, can just kind of play by ear and pick up anything and play it. And in 1953, he wins first prize at the Lighthouse International Jazz Fest. So, you know, seemingly his life is on course and set to become a professional musician. Uh, he becomes a keyboardist and singer with a group called the Paramours who will later change their name to the Righteous Brothers. And by 1962, uh, he becomes the manager for the Righteous Brothers. And so I think that's pretty interesting. Well, also, in around 1962, 1963, he and his wife began to hit a rough patch in their marriage. And this begins to cause him to really re-examine his life. And he becomes... A Christian. He has a conversion experience and he decides to enroll at Azusa Pacific College for a degree in sociology. And they also, as a couple, to sort of uh, repair their marriage, they begin attending a friend's church, or you would probably know that as a Quaker church. 
and this is in Yorba Linda, California. So this is in the early 60s. They begin attending a Bible study from a man they go to church with named Gunner Payne. Gunner's day job is that he is a local welder. And so Gunner becomes a very good friend of theirs, and they begin going to his Bible study. And through this time, John decides to give up his music career. He's, um, he just decides that's at odds with his Christian beliefs. And while he's in college, he is asked by the Quaker Church to come and join the staff around uh, 1966. By 1970, uh, under the direction of Gunner, who's become his mentor, he has 11 Bible studies with over 500 people in attendance. Um, in fact, it is during this time, the church had gone through a bit of a shakeup, and he was uh, upset, and he was out in a field in Yorba Linda. He was working on some kind of something to do with irrigation. His wife has told this story and that uh, he was praying about his mentor. He was upset, you know, if Gunner leaves, how am I going to manage all these Bible studies? You know, he's my mentor. He's the one helping me and guiding me through this. And he was uh, just very upset. And he said as he was praying, he began to pray in the Spirit. And so he came home and told his wife about it. And as a result of, of these things, around 1974, he decides to enroll at Fuller Seminary for their PhD program under C. Peter Wagner. And this is where they will meet. And they both later subsequently become fathers of the neo-charismatic movement. Uh, By the way, Fuller Seminary is a sort of a new seminary at this time, and it's interdenominational. In fact, it was born out of a radio evangelist, Dr. Fuller's vision for a seminary that was really focused on church growth. And so just to give you a little bit of history about Fuller. So while he's enrolled in Wagner's program, he begins to study church history, church movements, church growth, and he's just immersed in this idea. And uh, somewhere during this time, Wagner asked Wimber to come and work full-time at the seminary to develop a church growth like conferences and modules for pastors and with the blessing of the Quaker church they step down out of leadership although they stay in that church for a little bit longer but they're of course gone a lot of this time he's traveling all over the world with Fuller studying church growth and church patterns and uh, spending a lot of time in England at this time and where I guess Fuller had connections there and so they're just uh, just really immersed in the sociology of church growth and so that's a, a big part of who he is. They also began to work in 1977 with Calvary Chapel. In fact, uh, in an interview with uh, his wife Carol Wimber, she just says that you know they really didn't know how to put a label on who they were. So they were in the Friends Church and uh, they were in Calvary, uh, but they were doing all these Bible studies. And so they were sort of sort of all over the area, uh, going to different Bible studies, studying all these groups and 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 things like this. And he um, he meets a man during this time at these conferences around 1977. He meets the Gullickson family. The Gullicksons fascinated 
John Wimber during this time because they had had success with starting up seven brand new churches that they had called Vineyard churches. And these were very unusual, you know, new churches um, that just seemed to have explosive growth. And uh, Ken Gullickson decided to name these churches based out of Isaiah 27 verses 2 and 3. And that scripture says, In that day sing ye unto her a vineyard of red wine. I, the Lord, do keep it. I will water it every moment, lest any hurt it. I will keep it day and night. And so this is one of the foundational scriptures for the name of the vineyard church. And the other one is found in John 15, 5. They have a sort of another scripture that they list. And it says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him. The same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. And so so that's sort of the foundation of the Gullickson's startup churches. They start up with little home groups, like little home churches, and then they sort of just have this explosive growth. So John uh, meets the Gullickson's and form a friendship, and they both help plant a church that becomes a vineyard church. And John was just sort of taken with, hey, this guy really has uh, got us. He's a church planter. And so we see that with the blessing of the Gullicksons and the blessing of Calvary in 1982, he leaves those two organizations and plants his own vineyard with, you know, like I said, with the blessing of Gullickson in Anaheim. So the first Anaheim vineyard is planted in 1982. And Gullickson, you know, his role in all of this cannot be understated, but he just never seemed to stay in one place. He was constantly moving around planting churches, whereas John was pretty much always in California, and that sort of set him apart. So he gets, uh, uh, you know, I guess credit because he stayed there. Well, in 1982, John also is still sort of working uh, off of this class that he had taught at Fuller that became famous on church growth, and he begins doing conferences on church growth, which, which was really just a continuation of what he had been doing while he was at Fuller. He just begins to do them now through his church. He bases a lot of what he's teaching off of John 14, 12, he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And so John begins to refer the, refer to this as, we need to be doing the stuff that he told us to do. And so the works, the stuff. He believed that the the church was not just, to, you know, the pastor wasn't the only one doing the work, that the whole church needed to be busy doing the things the Lord told us to do. And so he, along with Gullickson, there, by this time there's dozens of vineyard churches, and they form uh, the Association of Vineyard Churches. Now I'm going to pause right here and jump over to a story about his wife, Carol, because I want to talk about what happens to her during this time. So while John was at Fuller, Carol, who had been raised Catholic, was not spirit-filled at this point. In fact, she said she was vehemently anti-charismatic. She had 
been reading, though, about some charismatic Catholics. And one night she goes to bed and she said she has a dream. And in this dream, she was teaching about the gifts of the Spirit while standing on a big box in front of a small group. Now, she said she had taught some classes at the Friends Church. Um, So that was something she had done before. Teaching was not new to her, but she said uh, she was teaching on the gifts of the Spirit. And in the dream, while she's doing that, this hot wind blows in hits her in the face. She said it goes into her mouth, down into her body, and then back out of her mouth. And as it did, she began praying in the Spirit. And she said she woke up praying in the Spirit. And so Carol has, you know, this experience. It was also during this time, and and I don't have an exact date on this, uh, John Wimber I'm going to pause right here before I get back to the timeline. He has this this series of three visions during this time. The first vision, he said, and this is while he was still at Fuller, sometime around the time Carol has this vision, he said he was actually kind of under the corner of the house and he was fixing a leaky pipe. He said he was laying on his back. And he said as he went to roll out from under the house, he looked up to the sky And he said it was so vivid that he saw this huge fire falling out of the sky. In fact, he said it was so real that he sort of rolled back under the house. And he said as soon as he turned his his head away and rolled under the house, he has a, a different vantage point within this vision as if he's in the sky now looking at this fireball. And he said it hits Southern California and then it sort of bounces off the land into the ocean and then he sees like he goes higher up like he's looking at the globe and he says he sees this fireball hit London and then the rest of Europe and then Asia and then Africa and he said it just really shook him it was so vivid he knew it was from God but he said he did not know what it meant and so a couple of years later um, while he's also at Fuller um, he has a second vision He said it was very similar to the first vision, but this time it was a large mountain. And I'm looking through my papers here, and he says he saw it was lava this time instead of fire. And he said this lava flowed out of the mountains and hit the same places and took the same path. And he said a couple of years later, he, uh, he had been studying and noticed the Jesus movement. In fact, that's associated with Calvary and how he becomes a part of Calvary. And he thought, oh, that's the fulfillment of the vision that, that the Lord gave me. And uh, as a result of that, uh, in his travels, uh, and this is around the time he has uh, started his own church, he goes to London with Fuller and he thinks okay well then then the Jesus movement is about to hit London so I want to be there when it happens and uh, he said he was in London and he was there with a prominent pastor named David Watson and he said that uh, uh, Watson had invited him to to come to his church and so he said while he was at the airport He said this was so vivid and so real that he felt like a hand hit him on the back of the head. In fact, he said it caused him to to kind of be knocked over, to stumble. And he said he heard 
prophetically now, he heard in his mind the Lord tell him, this is that which I spoke to you of. And so he said, wow, that really got his attention. Well, he said over the next couple of weeks at Watson's church, they saw a miraculous outbreak of the Holy Spirit. They saw blind people become healed where they could see. He said, we saw the lame walk and the deaf hear. And he said, they just had an amazing uh, outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And he said, he always shied away from the word revival. But he knew that God was doing something. People had gotten saved and delivered, and there was, you know, just uh, dramatic manifestations of the Holy Ghost. In fact, he said there were doctors there that documented, and uh, they had 33 confirmed miracles by doctor examination and, and, you know, took documentation of it. He said they were very precise in England about documenting everything, and um, he talks about that. Well, he said as they were leaving for him to go back to the States, they were there with uh, another man who was an African bishop, and they were all talking, and he was about to leave to get uh, onto the train. And he said that uh, the African bishop, he couldn't remember his name, but he said he was sort of teasing Watson. And uh, he was saying, so how are you going to report this? you know, to the church authorities, and he was sort of, you know, chiding him. And he said, as the bishop was sort of teasing this other pastor, that Wimber felt a slap to his chest. And he said to himself, he said, I don't know if I said it to myself or I heard the Lord say it, but he said he knew, and it was this uh, word that he said, it's the kingdom. And he said, that's what I've been looking for. And so he said that he knew he was on a mission now to bring this to other churches that, you know, greater works, the stuff, you know, that we need to be doing. So he begins pastoring his own vineyard church and doing conferences And he said that during this time, you know, that he just knew what his mandate and his mission were. And he had no idea that he's going to be later credited as one of the fathers of what's called the neo-charismatic movement or third wave Pentecostal and charismatic history. And so he goes on to have a massive impact. Uh, In fact, just the Vineyard Churches alone have over worldwide over 2,400 churches with over three to 400,000 members in 90 countries. Here in the United States, they have 600 churches with over 200,000 members. And, and a lot of people are associated with the Vineyard Churches because of their uh, music and their conferences. I know I've been to several conferences and, and been involved you know, with their music. And so they've had, just had this amazing impact. Some of the markers of this movement, and the Vineyard will tell you, they don't call themselves a denomination. They refer to themselves as a movement. But it, it is a, there is uh, the markers of signs and wonders, of the prophetic, you know, of words of knowledge, church planning, missions. You know, there's a focus on the Holy Spirit. They've been successful in crossing denominational lines. One of the things that... Uh, John Wimber was known for was food pantries. He said, you can't preach to people if you don't want to feed them. You know, we need to help the poor. And so outreach to the poor was a huge part of their ministry or is still today. And uh, he talked about being naturally supernatural and the need for the constant infilling of the Holy Spirit. 
Let me give you also some just other markers about John Wimber. He talked about uh, walking in the radical middle. What was unique about him is that he always wanted to balance the tension between the evangelical tradition or what we would call like mainline evangelical denominations and the Pentecostal and charismatic traditions. He was always sort of balancing that line because really at heart, he's an academic. And so he understood that. Some of the quotes that uh, are attributed to him is he would say things, and he talk in very simple vernacular, and he would say things like this, all word and no spirit we dry up, all spirit and no word we blow up, uh, all word and all spirit we grow up. And so that was sort of one of those things that are attributed to him. And so he was always struggling to bring balance into that movement. And uh, one time his wife said she sort of pulled him to the side and asked him, you know, uh, some people say you're a church planner. Some people say you're an influencer. You know, some people say that you are a revolutionary, you know, all these different things. Um, and so she just asked him, she said, Who, you know, how do you see yourself? And he told her, he said, I see myself as a change agent. And so, and he did, he really pushed the church to sort of get out of the pew and, and be about the kingdom. And so under his leadership, worship changed, you know, um, he, he felt like he was called to equip the saints. And really, I, I would have to say that this type of thinking, you know, has an impact even on a podcast like this. I have always grown up calling myself sort of a, a hybrid, if you will. You know, I, I jokingly call myself a Babda Caracostal. You know, I don't know what I am. I'm a hybrid. And so I can totally understand, you know, having that kind of view. I also want to talk about something his wife said. You know, she had that dream, but later, before they started their church, she said while they were, uh, while he was at Fuller, she was gardening one day and she had a vision. And uh, in that vision, she saw John and her pastoring a church. And uh, as a result, she knew that there would be an emphasis on the whole church and not just the leadership, not just the pastor, that that everyone in the church would be doing the quote, like they say, the stuff, you know, that God called us to do. But at the time of the dream, the Lord told her to be silent, to not to not share that, to not say anything about it. Um, and she said they went to this one in Anaheim, this one home group, and she said they were actually there to study, uh, very, you know, with sociology and through the Fuller Institute. They were actually there to study this group. And she asked John what, what he thought about it. And he was like, you know, it's an awesome group. You know, they've really got a hold of something special, but I don't think it'll go anywhere because they lack leadership. And I don't know that they will be able to grow. And so uh, Carol said it was during that time she just had this knowing. She said it just came from the Lord. She had this knowing that that would be the group they would pastor. But the Lord told her to be quiet. So she was quiet. And she said several years later, that that became uh, the foundation of the Anaheim Vineyard that they would pastor. And so she said that God had sort of prepared her to to enter into back into pastoral ministry. And so um, John was also famous for saying, you know, get filled with the Holy Spirit so we can do the stuff 
he told us to do. And so you just cannot discount in church history and Pentecostal charismatic history the impact of John Wimber. You know, now I think some of us in charismatic and Pentecostal circles, we almost take for granted that uh, you know, hearing and seeing from the Lord and giving someone a word of encouragement or a word of knowledge, you know, we almost take that for granted. But in the late 70s and the early 80s, that was almost unheard of. Now, it did happen there. You know, we've given prophetic history where God did minister that way, but the tradition within church really stifled that. And we now have a better understanding that the Lord actually does speak to us and give us dreams and he he can show us things supernaturally but i will have to dovetail off of what john wimber had to say it's it's in order to equip us it is to enable us to do the stuff he told us to do there's a purpose in god showing you something or allowing you to hear something or you to feel or sense something you know, through our five senses is the most common way that the Lord communicates with us outside of his word, his word being the primary way that he communicates with us. And, and all of that outside, you know, communication through our five senses always must line up with the word of God. And we know that, uh, especially in our series on prophetic evangelism, you know, God, he wants to show us who to pray for or to, to show us, you know, who to encourage or to minister to or or whatever. And so John Wimber gave language to that for the church at large. And for that, he uh, has an important role in church history. John Wimber sadly died in 1997 uh, of heart heart issues, uh, but uh, his ministry and his legacy carry on today. I think the vineyard churches are really unique. Uh, a lot of people have referred to to those groups as sort of a bunch of hippies that that love music and got spirit filled. And so I love that. There's definitely a lot of freedom in those churches, and so there's value in that. I think you know when we have a mindset of we all have a mission and we come together in unity. It's not about denominations. It's about pursuing the the Lord and the Great Commission to to share the love of Jesus with others. And so I hope this encourages you today. I hope you enjoyed learning about John Wimber. If you weren't familiar with that, uh, you know, the Vineyard Churches just have an amazing place in church history. And we're sort of still living in that third wave right now. And so it's an exciting time in church history. It's exciting time to be a part of the church. And so I encourage you to be open to what the Lord would be showing you or telling you, just like John Wimber was and just like his wife was. You know, God spoke to her in a dream and then later in a knowing, and he spoke to John in these series of open visions. And so it's just amazing to see how how a ministry as large as the vineyards could have been birthed out of that kind of experience with the Lord. I pray as you go about your week, that you too will have an encounter with the Holy Spirit. Have a blessed week. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please be sure to hit the subscribe button so you'll be informed next time I post. Thank you again and have a blessed day.